railroaded the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Whatever you think of Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht, creator of Silk Road, does not deserve a life sentence without the possibility of parole. That's a quote from Charlie Lee, the creator of Litecoin. I thought I'd start the show out every week with a quote. I hope that adds a little something extra for you. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded Podcast. This is part two of an eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland. You may know me from my other podcasts such as the Crypto Cousins Podcast and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. You can take a look at all my crypto podcasts and websites at CryptoPodcaster.com. Railroaded is a podcast series revealing behind-the-scenes information you've never heard before. This is a peek into the inner workings and conflicts in the Silk Road story, and you will meet the people involved. First, let me say I did not produce the railroaded content I'm about to play. I'm just distributing this show as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. I hope that the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are of being freed. The information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Ulbricht, Lynn Ulbricht, or anyone connected with FreeRoss.org. I am not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroaded was created by the FreeRoss team as narrated by Adrian Basson. On this episode, you'll hear Chapter 5, Going Rogue. Chapter 6, Thwarting Deryagan. Chapter 7, Being Wonderful. And Chapter 8, The Setup. Okay, that's enough for me. Let's go on and listen. Railroaded. The Targeting and Caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 5, Going Rogue Carla Garrick, candidate for New Hampshire Senate, said, This case isn't about Silk Road. It is about the future of Internet freedom, autonomy, and privacy. It was later discovered that McFarland had leaked investigation details to two Baltimore agents who, using theft, extortion, and other means, had enriched themselves through their involvement in Silk Road. These agents sought deliberately to undermine the integrity of the ongoing investigation. One was DEA agent Carl Mark Force. The other was Secret Service agent Sean Bridges, who was on a joint duty assignment with the National Security Agency, NSA, at the time. Seven months into his Silk Road investigation, Bridges went rogue 
as McFarland would later call it, and secretly seized $2 million from Carpellis's Wells Fargo account, which Carpellis was using in the operation of Mount Gox. Bridges did this to alert Carpellis that the U.S. government had him on its radar, and the walls were closing in on them, so they could avoid prosecution. It is still unknown what involvement Bridges had with Carpellis in the preceding months, but Bridges issued this seizure warrant because he didn't want a criminal case to proceed. If the U.S. government obtained Mount Gox records, they might see his name on them and discover his misdeeds. Not surprisingly, two days before he seized Carpellis's money, he made sure to get his own money out. Neither Duryagan nor McFarland knew of the seizure, because Bridges, in order to execute it, went behind their back to Richard Kay, an assistant U.S. attorney, AUSA, not associated with the Silk Road investigation. Force and Bridges also went after the bitcoins on Silk Road, but did so in secret so they could keep the money for themselves. According to Force, he pretended to be a drug smuggler for a cartel, gained DPR's confidence, and asked him to coordinate a large sale with one of Silk Road's top cocaine vendors, a user going by the name Google-Eyed. Allegedly, DPR tasked Curtis Green, one of his staff members, with setting up the deal. When approached by Green, Google-Eyed was suspicious of Force's offer and declined. Green agreed to accept delivery instead, and gave Force his home address. There, a SWAT team arrested him once the package was delivered. Once in custody, Green was interrogated by Force, Bridges, and the rest of the Baltimore Silk Road Task Force, and gave them his administrative login. Bridges pressured Green to show him how to exploit Silk Road's system, including how to change passwords and take over accounts. Soon after gaining access to the site, Bridges left the interrogation. He used his new knowledge to hijack and empty the accounts of top Silk Road vendors and move the funds to Carpellis's Bitcoin exchange, Mount Gox. However, Bridges did not move the Bitcoins directly from Silk Road. He first moved the funds to Green's Silk Road administrative account. Bridges didn't simply transfer 21,000 Bitcoins out to steal them. He transferred them to Green's account because he wanted to have a suspect. He wanted Silk Road vendors and users to know, here's the person who stole my bitcoins, it's Curtis Green. As Green would later testify, he set me up to take the fall. He wanted to make sure that it was me that did it, so he was very calculated. It was very well thought out in my opinion. Bridges' plan worked. When it was discovered that the bitcoins were stolen, Green was immediately accused. During the interrogation, Justin Herring, the Baltimore AUSA overseeing McFarland, screamed at Green, Come on, we know you stole it. We know you did it. Green then got pulled aside by an agent, who coaxed him to confess. Come on, they're the bad guys, he told him. I, I wish I could, Green kept saying. It doesn't make sense for me to steal the money, the bitcoins. If I was that type of person, why would I steal it the night that I am in front of 15 agents? I, wouldn't I have done it the week before in the comfort of my home? He couldn't believe they were accusing him. It made no sense to me whatsoever. It blew my mind. His interrogators threatened to tear up Green's cooperation agreement and send him to prison. We don't think you're telling the truth, Herring told him. 
and since you lied to us, we're going to take that away. Green, a father and grandfather, begged them for a lie detector test, but Force kiboshed that every time. According to the government, Force and Bridges also duped DPR into believing that Green was behind the theft. Allegedly, DPR then went to Force, still thinking he had cartel connections, and asked him to track Green down and retrieve the vendor's money. Force agreed, and, with Green already in custody, played along and pretended to catch Green and kill him. It is unknown, however, if DPR was actually involved at all, because the evidence for this entire incident came from Force himself after he and Bridges had infiltrated Silk Road. They had the ability to fabricate the whole thing. When I saw the murder-for-hire transcripts, Green said in a later interview, they were in line with Force's narrative exactly what he portrayed. So, was it there, or did they put it there? I don't know. Force and Bridges went on to extort DPR on other occasions, using pieces of Der Jägen's investigation as leverage, along with threats of exposure and death. In one instance, they messaged DPR using the name Death from Above and told him they had identified him and were going to take revenge for having Green killed. Eventually, they settled for extorting him. Another time, under the name French Maid, the two corrupt agents tried to sell DPR information concerning the government's investigation into the Silk Road. Force, out of habit, signed one of his messages with his first name, Carl. To cover this up, he later said his name was Carla Sophia, a Silk Road user with many girlfriends and boyfriends on the site. These and other schemes netted the pair at least 23,984 bitcoins, although it is unknown how many remain hidden. Chapter 6. Thwarting Der Jägen Stephen Duke, North American Events Manager for Students for Liberty, said, this case is also very much about the future of privacy and surveillance, and sets some dangerous precedents for those who want to open digital marketplaces or use digital currencies. By this time, Der Jägen's investigation was derailed, leaving him with no seizures and Carpellis scrambling to escape the government's pursuit. However, Der Jägen was sure he had his man, and continued to doggedly pursue him. On May 17, 2013, a conference call occurred among Der Jägen and AUSA Crickbaum from Chicago, McFarland and AUSA Herring from Baltimore, and AUSA K, who had helped Bridges go rogue and seize Carpellis's money. During the call, K stated he was trying to work on an interview with Carpellis. Crickbaum asked what the purpose of the interview was. K replied that he wanted to know more about Carpellis's money business and to ask him directly about his knowledge of Silk Road. Der Jägen expressed serious concern over that approach, and over Kay using his information developed on Carpellis for his own use. Kay agreed to hold off for several months while Der Jägen prepared his indictment. Even with Kay's assurance, Der Jägen was worried that he would go behind his back again, and expressed this to McFarland. McFarland reassured him that he had complete control over Kay, and he was the one to decide whether or not Carpellis would be interviewed, that he would honor Der Jägen's request to not pursue or interview Carpellis. On another conference call two months later, 
Duryagin specifically asked Herring if there were any developments with Carpellis, and Kay specifically if there were any more talks about meetings. Herring said there was not. Once again, Duryagin's trust in his colleagues was misplaced. Unknown to him, they were working out their own deal with Carpellis. In fact, on July 8th, the day before telling Duryagin there would be no meeting, Herring was notified by Kay that a face-to-face meeting was going to take place between him and Carpellis's attorney. Neither Kay nor Herring notified Duryagin or told him about the meeting when he specifically asked. Two days later, Kay met in person with Carpellis's attorneys. During the meeting, Carpellis's lawyers brought up Silk Road and stated that Carpellis was willing to tell them who he suspects is currently running the website in order to relieve him of any potential charges. Kay then proceeded to arrange a meeting overseas with Carpellis himself. That same evening, Der Jägen met with McFarland and Herring in preparation for a coordination meeting the next day, yet neither mentioned the meeting planned with Carpellis or his lawyers. At the coordination meeting, yet another law enforcement office was brought in. FBI New York, represented by their lead investigator, Christopher W. Tarbell, and Southern District of New York AUSA Saren Turner, along with multiple DOJ and CCSIP attorneys. Tarbell brought an important piece of the government's investigation to the table, the location of the server hosting Silk Road. It was in Iceland, and Tarbell said he was seeking a copy of it from the Reykjavik Metropolitan Police. Force and Bridges now had reason to fear that any communications between themselves and DPR would be accessible to Tarbell. Der Jägen briefed his entire case to the group and once again identified Carpellis as their main target and the man behind DPR and the Silk Road. The CCSIP attorney overseeing the meeting asked if any other office had any case on Carpellis. All the Baltimore attendees, including McFarland, Herring, Herring's supervisor, and Bridges, all remained silent, despite knowing that a meeting had just taken place with Carpellis's attorneys the day before. The CCSIP attorney went on to say that, since the information Der Jägen shared was brought in good faith, that no other office should attempt to pursue Carpellis. Chapter 7 being wonderful. Alex Winter, director of the Deep Web Documentary, said, The Silk Road and case of Ross Ulbricht speak to some of the most important and contentious issues of our day. Citizens' rights in the digital age, government surveillance and overreach, and the often extreme and unfair sentences in cyber-related criminal cases. With the Silk Road server location in hand, there was a lot of pressure from the U.S. Attorney's Office to find DPR and take down the site. Der Jägen redoubled his efforts, knowing he'd lose Carpellis if he did not arrest him before the site was taken down. To this end, he and another HSI agent created a new identity on the Silk Road forum named Mr. Wonderful. Mr. Wonderful then approached the forum administrators who regularly spoke with DPR in an attempt to turn them into informants. One admin, Cirrus, was compromised by Mr. Wonderful and recruited to cooperate against the site and DPR. Eventually, Der Jägen took over the Cirrus account. As DPR's employee, 
he interacted with him daily, in search of any clue he could use to expose him. Once again, Der Yegen mistakenly entrusted his colleagues in Baltimore with knowledge of this operation, and one of them took advantage of it with a scheme of their own. It remains unknown if this person was Force, Bridges, Kay, several working together, or someone else entirely, but whoever it was created an account named Not Wonderful and contacted DPR. Not Wonderful told DPR he could provide real-time information and analysis regarding the federal investigation of Silk Road and DPR. In the following months, Not Wonderful sold DPR intimate details pertaining to the investigation, including details of Der Yegen's Mr. Wonderful operation. There is a fixation on somehow penetrating or compromising your moderators through bribing or threatening them into providing access to a staff account, he told DPR. They seem to be under pressure to get someone of great importance to show a win for USA. Not Wonderful outlined the agencies going after DPR. I'm trying to warn you, the DEA, ICE, Postal Inspector, NSI, FBI, CIA, NSA are itching to get credit for your arrest. DPR paid Not Wonderful in bitcoins every week for ongoing updates on the investigation. Chapter 8. The Setup Catherine Fitz, Assistant Secretary of Housing under President George H.W. Bush, said, Ross Ulbricht was framed. The feds who framed him broke a lot of laws and made a complicated mess. Eventually, Herring informed Der Yegen about the meeting Kay had with Carpellis's attorneys and the plans to meet with Carpellis himself. Once again, Der Yegen told Herring that he did not want him to pursue Carpellis or meet with him, that it would damage his ongoing investigation. But by now, Der Yegen had lost control, and Carpellis was already working closely with Baltimore. Kay changed the meeting location to Guam, widely known as an NSA stronghold. Der Yegen continued to express deep concern over this meeting and its effect on his investigation against Carpellis, but Herring did not appear concerned or willing to stop it. Unbeknownst to Der Yegen, his colleagues in Baltimore and New York had already determined that Carpellis would not be the target. Force and Bridges learned in advance that law enforcement intended to make an arrest of DPR, thereby giving them ample time to work him. This allowed DPR to formulate and implement an escape plan that incriminated Ross. Exactly what Carpellis told Kay remains unknown, but it is established that he offered Kay someone to target as DPR instead of himself in exchange for legal immunity. Ross was the perfect fall guy, because after all, Silk Road was his idea, and he trusted DPR enough to hand his creation off to him early on. It would take just over two months after Carpellis met with Kay for the government to apprehend Ross. As stated in court documents, with pressure mounting toward the end of 2013, because the government had access to Silk Road servers but permitted the site to continue operating, they seized on Ross as DPR, thereby letting Carpellis escape and leave Ross as the wrongly prosecuted culprit. 
just as Bridges had set up Green to take the fall for his theft, Ross was set up to take the fall for the entire operation of Silk Road. DPR, who purchased and was leaked information about the government's investigation of Silk Road, framed Ross to absorb the consequences. In order to issue subpoenas and warrants, and ultimately indict Ross, the government had to provide an explanation of why he was DPR and how they found him. Known as parallel construction, this is a tactic used by law enforcement as a means of disguising how an investigation began. In Ross's case, the government's explanation was that a forum post containing Ross's email address was suddenly discovered on Carpellis's website, bitcointalk.org, by IRS agent Gary Alford, using a simple date-restricted Google search. Despite Der Jägen's tireless and lengthy Silk Road investigation, and his finding that the first posting about Silk Road appeared on Carpellis's forum on March 1, 2011, by a user named Silk Road, Alford claimed he found evidence of an even earlier post, dated January 29, 2011, by a user named Altoid. However, Alford couldn't have found this earlier post because it didn't exist. Rather, he testified that he found a quote of this post within another user's post talking about Silk Road. Alford then said he found a subsequent post by Altoid, dated October 11, 2011, that appeared to be a help-wanted ad for a Bitcoin startup company that listed the contact information rossulbricht at gmail.com. According to the government's version of events, this post is what led them to suspect that Ross was behind Silk Road. However, it would have been simple for Carpellis, or anyone else with high-level access to bitcointalk.org, to plant this information. Alford's official story defies belief. Finding Ross's email address this way was like finding a needle in a haystack the size of the internet. It was a task that scores of investigative journalists, extortionists, hackers, and numerous law enforcement agencies had tried and failed at for years. On the other hand, if he was provided with the information in advance, it would have been like finding the needle with a high-powered magnet. With Ross's email address in hand and an explanation linking it to Silk Road, all that remained was tracking down his physical location. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org slash railroaded. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org slash petition. Over 172,000 people have signed it so far, and that's up another thousand since last week's show. So far, it's been going up about 1,000 a week signing the petition since we've started this show. For additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also follow Ross on Twitter at RealRossU, and the U is just a letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to so you don't miss a single episode. Like I said, there will only be eight episodes. I'd love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really does help way more than you know. And please share this podcast with your friends on social media, and let's get the word out there. 
This episode is sponsored by the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. Take a look at this great conference coming to Dallas, Texas at bitblockboom.com. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas. Until the next episode, this is Gary Leland from CryptoPodcaster.com saying thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you.